and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Whether you're listening to the podcast in iTunes or Spotify or watching us on YouTube, if you want more great chats with top industry professionals, be sure to check out our over 200 interviews on scriptsandscribes.com or youtube.com slash scriptsandscribes. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a like, a five-star rating, or a nice comment. We really do appreciate it. And for the extended conversation with our guest today, or with any of our guests, be sure to check out our the after show uh, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash scripts and scribes. Uh, and today on the show, I'm very happy to have on a first-time guest that we're going to welcome to the show. He's a screenwriter and producer whose credits include American History X, SWAT, Blow, and Get Carter. He's also been a film professor at Columbia University and Barnard College, and his new film, Embattled, starring Stephen Dorff, which looks amazing, uh, and which the LA Times called smart and heartfelt, and an exciting, scrappy brawler of a film called Embattled. It opened in theaters on November 20th in limited release and on digital and VOD. Uh, he is David McKenna. Welcome to the podcast, David. Kevin, it's great to be here, buddy. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on. I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, how have you been during the quarantine? I know you've got three kids at home and you're working and I'm sure it's a, it's a madhouse. <laughs> so you've got a film that just came out. So what's life like been for you in quarantine so far? Um, well, I, uh, you know, it's been a struggle just like with everybody else, but I mean, there's positives to having three kids at home, uh, and a wife and a dog. And then there's negatives. Uh, one is, is you don't get lonely. That's a positive, but then you don't really have a whole lot of privacy, but, uh, it's been great. You know, we moved closer to the water, um, last summer, uh, two summers ago. And so, uh, you know, I still get to, you know, I can go outside as opposed to being in LA or New York and just, you know, being in essentially a dungeon. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I was up, I was up in LA recently and it was not pretty. And, um, and so that's, that's been a benefit of it, but it, it just sucks. It really does. It's, it's, it's awful. The, you know, my, I have kids in high school. I have one in college and, and, uh, you know, they're, you know, they've lost a year. We've all lost kind of a year of our life, you know, but it is what it is. Everybody's in the same, you know, mess. Just deal with it. Mm-hmm. How about uh, you? Uh, yeah. I mean, the same. It's like it's a lost year almost. Like the yeah. year sort of flew by. And nothing was real, not much was accomplished in terms of, you know, a lot of the things that you do, birthdays and holidays and, you know, just summer vacation and work. And I mean, it all just sort of blends together into this just long drawn out, not much. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, What area do you live in now? I live on Babel Island in Newport Beach. So I live on an island. It's very cool. It's a great spot. I'm close to the water. Um, I, I love to paddleboard. It's a great workout. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's great. I mean, I, I moved down to Newport Beach from LA, uh, about 20 years ago. Um, I liked LA, but I didn't want to raise my kids there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just trek up whenever I need to trek up. Not anymore. Now everything's done by Zoom. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I love LA. LA, I'll, I'll always have a special place in my heart with LA, but, uh, um, I don't like it right now. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and for those people who are watching or listening who 
uh, aren't familiar with Los Angeles, Newport Beach is in Orange County, which is just south of LA. So you're just outside of LA, but I'm sure with traffic, it can be difficult sometimes. About an hour away. About an hour, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, what have you, we're asking everybody during the quarantine, one or some of the things that you have done during the quarantine that has been sort of, uh, you know, a learning experience, like people learn to bake bread or, uh, I guess with, with three kids, you probably learned to meditation or sanity or try to keep your sanity, you know, tricks like that. Uh, what have you done during the quarantine specifically other than work? Or um, I love to cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooking is just a great, uh, it's a, you know, it's an excuse not to write, uh, to get away from it. So, um, and going to restaurants, sitting in parking lots and having dinner is pointless to me. So why not <laughs> go, to the, <laughs> go to the store, make a good dinner. Uh, we play, we play lots of games. Last night we played taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really good bonding with my kids um and uh and to cook and uh you know i'm i am like a how you i really am a housewife right now i i do lots of laundry um i love watching football um i'm trying to get caught up in all the movies um and uh you know i mean just the the same old stuff that everybody else is doing um what do i like to do Luckily, I have a body of water right outside my house. And so, like I said, I love to paddleboard and, uh, and, uh, and go on bike rides and, and, you know, take long walks, you know, just the same old stuff that everybody's been doing. OC is a little bit more lenient on the, on the laws as far as, uh, uh, compared to LA. So that's been nice. Right, um, right. You have lot. I have lots of people from LA calling me. You know, hey, you know, we're coming down or whatever. And so, um, you know, it's it's been it's been fine. But I, you know, I just miss uh, going to a bar and hanging out with people and not having to wear, worry about a face mask and and uh, just living our lives, taking a vacation. You know, right. I mean, right. You can't even take a vacation right now. It's ridiculous. So, right. Hopefully, you can't even take a vacation. Just give me the shot, baby. Right. I'll take the shot. Right. Right. Load yeah. me up. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, as a first-time guest, we always start with uh your background, where you're from, uh, and how you sort of first became enamored and passionate about film and television. So maybe give us a little bit about your background, where you're from and, and where you studied and, and, and how you got involved in, in film and television. Yeah. I mean, um, well, I was born down in San Diego and then my, my mom and my dad got divorced and I'm a, I'm an only child from a single mom. I never really spent any time with my dad. Um, and, um, I Same. think that, I think that added a lot to, becoming a writer. I think that my mom worked all the time. So I was this latchkey kid. And so I really had an active imagination. Um, and then after graduating and I was always a pretty good writer. Um, but then when I went to school, after graduating high school, I went to San Diego state and I was a business major and I just hated it. I didn't understand it. Um, it was not for me. Um, and then, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who uh, um, at San Diego State was wrongly accused of a rape. Oh. 
and the woman dropped charges like two days later, but by then his name was completely destroyed and his reputation was destroyed. And at the time, the accused was out, I think, or maybe the accused was out a couple of years before with Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a play uh, called The Male Perspective about what it's like f- and just show the male the whole time of what it's like to be accused of a rape. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I wrote, I literally, I go, somebody said, I said, how long is a screenplay? Thinking it was a play. Oh. They wrote, they said, they said 120 pages. And so I wrote a 120 page play wow. called The Male Perspective while I was, I think I was 19 or 20 years old. Um, and I just, and, and then, and then, Somebody said, no, screenplay, movies. And I go, okay, what's a screenplay? And I went to the San Diego State Bookstore, and I saw Sid Field's book, Screenplay. Mm-hmm. And hello? Yep. Okay. And I read game. that. I read that, and I just, I mean, that's when I knew I wanted to be a screenwriter. I'd read that. I'd read that book, and it really spoke to me. Um, I loved movies, but I didn't really understand how they came about, you know, oh, like you, you go, you go to the movies, you go see Platoon, you know, and it's, it's, it's this great movie. Oh, somebody actually wrote that, you know, I mean, so, um, they didn't just turn on a camera. Um, and so, uh, I just started really writing screenplays while I was a business major. I was already upper division in business, so I couldn't change majors. Um, I got a journalism minor thinking that that would somehow help my writing, which it did. Um, and, uh, by the time I graduated college, I had a major, a minor, and I had three screenplays under my belt and I moved up. I, I basically said, I want to be a screenwriter. I moved up to LA. I didn't know one person. I lived in a room of this guy's house and, uh, I, you know, I didn't know anybody and thankfully he was nice and he invited me out to places, out to go out to, uh, out with, uh, in, um, in LA. And just over the next four years, I worked, you know, I was a waiter at a great restaurant in Pantola in Santa Monica. And I just, I would write all day and then I'd wait tables that night. If you want to be a, a writer and work hard, you know, you can't like work a day job. You have to, cause you don't get enough time on the computer. And so I could go from five o'clock to 10 o'clock and make mm-hmm. enough money to support myself while I wrote screenplays. And, uh, there was, I was waiting tables one night on a guy named, uh, uh, Nick Grillo, who used to work for Newfeld Remy, um, who did all the Tom Clancy, uh, Hunt for Red October movies. Mm-hmm. And they had a deal at Paramount and, Somehow I found out his name was Nick Grillo and I found out that Nick uh, worked for them. And I go, well, Nick, you know, I'm a screenwriter. <laughs> and of course his eyes rolled, you know, geez, here we go. I'm going to get hit up again. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I go, Nick, how about this? I go, Nick, give me two weeks. Let me polish up a couple of scripts. Uh, you come back in, I'll buy you dinner. I'll buy you a glass of red wine. He used to drink, he was an old school Italian. So he drank red wine out of a drink glass. Oh, wow. And, um, and he goes, fine, David, no problem. And then I touched on my scripts. I called him and, 
and I was expecting, you know, I, I, we made the exchange. I bought him dinner. He took two screenplays from me and, and, uh, I was expecting to hear back from him, you know, maybe give him a couple weeks, a week and a half, a couple weeks, and then call back. He called me the next day and he goes, David, you're a pretty fucking good writer, man. And I go, thank you, Nick. And he goes, I'm going to give these, uh, two, two screenplays to a friend of mine. He works at Metropolitan Agency. And I go, Oh my God, Nick, thank you so much. Uh, a guy named Paul Kelmanson, Paul Redham and, uh, called me in. I met with Paul and boom, just like that, had an agent. And, wow. That, uh, yeah, that doesn't it, happen very often. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was really great. And, uh, and, um, you know, so I was, I don't know, I was, 24, 25 years old. And I had three screenplays. He tried to sell those screenplays, but he didn't, he couldn't sell them. And then I, around that time, I started writing American History X. And so American History X was basically the fourth script that I had written, first one sold. So okay. that's, that's kind of the long and short of it. I don't know if it was too long, but. No, no, I, I no. Think- and, and your story is that rare occurrence where hitting up uh, a restaurant patron that your restaurant you're working at to read your script, to hopefully like your script, to pass it on to an agent, to the agent liking the script enough to sign you. That's the reason that, that young writers think that, Oh, I'm going to carry my script around and hand it or email it to nowadays it's email, uh, get it to anybody that I see because that's the way you break in, which as we all know, that's, it's not necessarily very common in fact it's very rare for something like that to happen so but but well, your story I mean, is like one of the reasons that 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 the myth that oh yeah somebody read my script and i all of a sudden you know like with matthew mcconaughey discovered at a shopping mall you know in texas yeah. um and all of a sudden became a big actor it doesn't yeah. really happen that way no i mean but that is that is kind of the essence of the story is it's show business and you have to be, you have to go out and get these people to read you and right. you have to be, you have to be assertive. You can't just sit back and rest on your talents. You have to be, it's, that's why it's show business. Mm-hmm. You've got to be good at the business side of it as well. And um, I forget what I was going to say. There was something else, but you know, and, and I mean, that is the, Oh, back then, Kevin, we mm-hmm. had to go to Kinko's print them up, print the scripts up and give hard copies and send out hard copies, you know, so you're spending half of your money, uh, um, uh, just literally making copies of your script. Right. And, and you're going, and back then we had, you had to pay for seminars. Um, this (laughs) isn't, I don't want to age myself too much, but you know, you'd literally go to a hotel conference room. Nowadays you get everything online. But back then you had to go to these big giant conference rooms. I, I remember dropping 400 bucks, which was everything to me, to go listen to Bob Cosberg talk about how to pitch your movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think so, they st- nowadays in COVID, they, everything's online, but I know that they still yeah. have some of those virtual pitch fests or even like in-person pitch fests that, at, so I think they still do a lot of that stuff. Good. Um, you know, so. Well, it's, it's- the pitch is kind of dead though. I mean, um, as far as from the movie perspective side, I mean, pitches are, are really just have stopped. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole business has stopped right. during COVID, <laughs> but, but, you know, pitches are, are, you know, 
people want to read the script. Right. You know, you got to. Yeah. And I wanted to mention that you had talked you'd mentioned that um, being getting out there, getting people to read you, which is incredibly important, but I want to touch on something else. You had three scripts already. And so that's another thing that I think newer writers need to, to prepare for. You need to be ready. Like when there's an opportunity, when someone says, okay, sure, I'll read your script. You need to have a script you and it needs to be good and you need to have ideally more than one script uh you can't say oh yeah well i'm just i'm working on my thing now so i'll get back to you in six months when it's done or you know just finish slap it together just to get it to somebody just because they're willing to read you have to sort of be ready so that's another thing is is keep writing get your material out in as good a shape as you can so that when an opportunity does come it's not like oh yeah i've been meaning to write this thing i have a great idea i'm gonna pitch it to this you know, executive or producer or whatever, but I haven't actually written it yet. I know a lot of newer writers starting off are in that boat. Get something written, especially now in quarantine when you have more time. It's, you know, it's, it's, if it was easy, everybody would do it, Kevin, right? You know, right. I mean, it's hard to attack the blank page. You've got to have something to say. You've got to have a work ethic. I mean, this is why, I mean, I'm looking at myself right now. I look like shit. And that's because I woke up at 4.15 this morning because I'm working on this new script. And so it's just, um, uh, you know, you have to be able to, there's too much, the world is your competition now. That's the true. world is your competition. You know, it's, it's easy to email a script from Holland. And, um, and so how are you going to be better? How are you going to, you know, sell your script in this marketplace where they're only buying a certain amount of scripts. The studios are hardly make buying anything new. How are you going to make a living? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's all about, it's all about hard work. You know, the talent is, you know, obviously the talent has to be there, but if you're not willing to write a script and get up early and kick butt, then get out now while right. you can. Right. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. Mm hmm I wanted to talk to you a lot about uh, your writing process and things like that. But before we jump into that stuff, uh, let's talk about uh, your new film, Embattled, uh, starring Stephen Dorff. Uh, mm -hmm. Reminded me a little of this Conor, Conor McGregor, although I know uh, uh, he, he plays a character that's uh, from Alabama. Yeah. Um, but it gave me some warrior vibes. It looks really, really cool. So can you tell us a little bit about Embattled, what the story's about, and uh, you know how it came to be? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big Robert Duvall fan, and I've, you know, I've always been a big movie for me when I was a kid was The Great Santini, and so I was always looking forward to doing this really epic sort of father-son story. I just didn't have the right idea, and then this MMA idea came across, and where a father fights a son, and I thought, okay, well, what's the ultimate father-son movie? The ultimate father-son movie is where the two fight each other in an MMA fight. I mean, does it get any bigger than that? You know, no. Okay, well, how do you sell it? Okay, that's the hard part. You know, people might roll their eyes at that notion. Well, you know, that's my job as a screenwriter to make it as believable as possible. Um, I uh, I have one of my son, my middle son uh, has a, a genetic disorder called Williams syndrome. So... I thought that uh, to add um, uh, one element to the father-son is to give our main 
our older son, Jet, who's basically the moral center of the story, to give him a little brother with special needs to make things a little bit more difficult on him because now he's got to deal not only with his father, who is out of control, Conor McGregor meets Chuck Liddell, um, but he also has a little brother to deal with. He has to deal with school. He has to deal with financial issues with his mother, you know. So I want to make things – it's always good to make – as things difficult as possible on your protagonist. Mm -hmm. You can never lose out on that. And, uh, and so taking that template right there, you know, that's, that's a good foundation right there for, for a movie. And, um, you know, it just, it, it turned out to be, uh, something that, you know, it just turned out to be something I think really, really special. I'm very proud of it. Um, I'm very proud that I got a chance to, to work with my son, who's the third male lead in the movie. He ended up getting, he ended up reading and getting the part. I didn't necessarily right. write it for him. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Stephen Dorff and Darren Mann are, uh, you know, two fantastic actors. They really, they really brought the piece to life. And uh, Nick Sarkisoff, our director, he, he hadn't done much. He did a, he, he's, he's Georgian, Georgia by Russia. Right, right, right. And uh, he, he'd done a movie called Krasny, which he did some really interesting things there. And, uh, but with this, he really just sort of, in my opinion, knocked it out of the parks for, for relatively first time director. He did a really fantastic job. I've had my issues with directors certainly in the past. Um, and with Nick, it was, it was probably the best experience I've had, you know, as far as being a writer and just being involved you know, from point A to point Z, you know, with this, with this process, but it's been, it was a great, it was a great experience. Um, so in terms of working with a director as a writer, cause you've been a writer, you've been a writer producer. Uh, what was the process like on Embattled where the writer is actually a little bit more active? Cause I know sometimes a writer gets rewritten and sometimes a writer, you know, I've, yeah. is replaced on a show or not allowed on set because the director is, you know, much more controlling, but yeah. on a film like embattled where you are much more involved, can you walk us through that sort of process? You talked a little bit about the conception, but you know, through the pre-production production and, and release phases, what your, your, well, your job it, was. this is a funny story because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was meeting with the producers on it and, um, and there was this big guy in the room and, you know, and I was just getting notes after the first draft of Embowed. And um, I thought this guy was, you know, just a PA. I thought he was just some sort of development executive. But whenever I'm in a room, I always, and this is a good tip for writers, I always include everybody. Um, it's important. You never know uh, where a good idea is going to come from. I always ask opinions from everybody from the highest person to the lowest person. Um, I've always learned in life to always include people and, uh, and anybody, everybody that much works in the entertainment business should read how to win friends and influence people. Mm. Um, but, uh, I turned to this guy and I said, I was getting all the notes from, from the ladies, great notes. And I turned to this guy and I said, well, what do you think? And he basically in his, in his Georgian accent said, uh, uh, I think it's, I think the script is terrific. And, uh, he gave me a few more notes and he gave me a few more ideas and I get in the car and I drive back from LA to Newport beach. And one of the ladies, one of the female producers calls me and says, David, great job. And I go, what? And he goes, 
that guy's Nick Sarkisov, um, and he wants to direct our movie, and he wants to finance it, uh, all the money uh, by themselves. We're going to have to, you know, pre-sell foreign rights and all that. And uh, essentially, you know, Nick, uh, uh, you know, took we took the movie together, and we just ran with it, and uh, he was willing to cast Steven. He was willing to cast. Wow. Uh, you know, go on a limb, you know, for a $10 million movie, it's, you know, Steven is a fantastic actor, but it's hard to get financing for a $10 million with Steven. And, um, and, uh, you know, we just casted it the way we wanted to. And, uh, Nick, uh, um, they, Nick casted my son. My son came in to read when I wrote the script, my son Colin was in seventh grade. And then by the time I was formed to read for it, he was in ninth grade. So mm. he was perfect for the part. And, uh, and so what happened was, is my wife and my son Colin moved to Birmingham, Alabama for six weeks to go shoot the movie. I was only on set a little bit. I don't like being on set. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, if you're a writer, it's really boring and <laughs> you sit around, you wait, you know, and you know, whatever, how, what did Sorkin say, you know, uh, uh, the old adage, you know, a, a writer on a movie set is like a hooker hanging around in the morning, you know, <laughs> <laughs> wanting breakfast. Right, um, right. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I might want to direct at some point, you know, but, you know, when you're a director on set, it's not boring because you're constantly making decision after decision after mm-hmm. decision. But, uh, um, I mean, that's kind of the inception of the story with Nick, you know, and, uh, uh, he was great. He was very inclusive and he, oh, you know, when I was on set, which is, I was probably on set for maybe a week, I, I had to fly back and forth because I, my two other two kids were back here. Oh, and yeah. so, um, you know, he just, he was always including, always asked what I thought. I'd, I'd give him my opinion and, uh, you know, but it's, it's his movie and his decision making. And, you know, he, he did a really, really good job of, taking what I wrote and the actors did a, a really good job of interpreting the characters. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I was very proud of the script and I'm very proud of the movie. And so whenever you have those two interlinked, uh, you know, everybody did their job correctly. Right. And it's not always the case. So that's, uh, that's fantastic when you have something that you're so proud of and it works out sort of in the way you would hope that it would work out. Cause you know, in the business, it doesn't, that's not, yeah. that's not always the case. Um, no, I've had lots of, I've had lots of bad movies, you know, and I've had seven, eight movies or whatever it is. And half of them have been good and half of them, a couple of them have been okay. And a couple of them have been really bad, you know? Um, and I don't, and I don't necessarily think, I think that's just, there's just some miscommunication that takes place from when you hand the script off, you know, to the director, to the editor, to the actors or whatever. And it just kind of, you know, and I don't mean, I, let me stick up for the writers a little bit. It's mm-hmm. very rare that financiers green light a bad script, you know, so sure. something else, so something else is happening along the way. And, uh, and so that's the problem. I think, I think that's a problem. We had a, a conversation in our last podcast. It was, uh, for Thanksgiving, it was sort of this group panel discussion uh, with some writers and some lit managers and um, some aspiring writers all together. And one of the things that, that was brought up was 
Twitter and just in terms of social media and public forums and bashing films uh, in a public way, not just for political reasons of how that's bad because you may be want to work with some of these people in the future, but also for a creative reason because and this is a manager producer who brought this up that you don't know what went into making that film. Like you said, producers don't often buy scripts that are bad. And so somewhere along that process, whether it's they brought in a new writer or the director started to write things or they couldn't shoot based on budget for this or that or something happened in production or in the editing process, something changed or someone, an actor was cast who wasn't right based on name value. Any, a million things could happen between when you, the writer, are sitting at your computer typing and press, you know, print on your draft and that goes out and when the film is actually, the lights go down and the film is projected on a screen, there are a, literally a million decisions between those two things that can affect the outcome of the film. And so oftentimes when a film is bad, it's not necessarily solely on the writer. You may not even, as the, the original writer, if you're rewritten, and if they're not rewritten by more than, what is it, 50% according to WGA, some of those writers don't even get credit. So the, the movie may not be bad, and it's not, it's like that's not mostly your script anymore. And so when you're bad-mouthing a film, keep that in mind. <laughs> Let's take Get Carter for example. Okay, you know, yeah, I'd love to. Because it's you know it's it's one of my worst movies probably. Um, I, I I liked Get Carter. I mean, you know, well, American History X. It wasn't, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I, you know, I was extremely proud of that script. Hmm. And um, yeah, that's true. I hadn't seen the like I hadn't read an original script for it before. I, saw I was it, I was really happy with the second draft. Yeah. Um. And, um, and, you know, Mark Canton, the producer gave it to Sylvester Stallone and I go, okay, I didn't think that was, he was necessarily the right Mm. casting part for it. But, you know, I mean, Sylvester Stallone is an icon and, you know, I went with it and, and Mark Canton at the time wanted to do for Sly what Tarantino had done for Travolta with Pulp Fiction. Right. And so, um, you know, I went with it a little bit. Um, then you know, and I have the script and then we get a director on board. I'm not going to say his name, but you know, I mean, the director literally, you know, rewrote the script behind my back, oh. violate WGA rules. Um, Sylvester, we're getting ready to shoot. The money comes forward. Sylvester calls me, David, get back in here. You know, you're going to help me fix this, you know, and I go back and I try and fix it. Uh, the director doesn't want any part of it. And, uh, you know, and then the, the whole movie, you know, the director, when the director took, takes over, he makes it his own thing. And to me, you know, it's like what it is, it's, it's, it's an, it's like an, it's like a builder taking a design an architect has, you know, and at the last minute deciding to move a bathroom across the hall and moving this bedroom over here and doing this upstairs, you right. know, you don't, when you have a screenplay, you have to shoot the screenplay. You know, you can't mess around with it. You can't, you know, it, it, it ha- you know, everybody agrees on it. And sometimes these things just run away from you. And, right. and, and, and that's what happened with Kit Carter. And, uh, and then, and then at the end, I'm fighting for credit because I want the money, you know? <laughs> I want sure. Yeah. Pay, you know? So here you are, you're fighting for something that 
you don't necessarily agree with. And some of it, a lot of it's not what you intentionally wrote. And so um, it's just this catch 22 all over again. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think I could be any more um, clear about the whole, cause my father-in-law is an architect mm. and it's, it's so akin to you know, a screenplay is designing a house and the builder is the director, you know, and you just need to stick to it. If you change stuff at the last minute while you're on set or while you're shooting or just before, you know, and it affects everything because then the actors will get lost. And then, then, you know, and it's just one thing after another where, you know, you, and if you change the slightest little thing, you know, it just, it turns out, it turns into, you're making a, a mountain out of a molehill and right. it's, it, it's, and it's tough. It's tough right. to recover from. It really well, is. It's funny because you had mentioned Quentin Tarantino and the the thing is Quentin can do that because he is the writer and the director. It's, yes. it's he's not one or the other. Yes. So in other words, he's changing his own blueprints and that's different than the builder yeah, totally going different. and adding rooms to the second floor that didn't belong there first. And you know, yeah. things like that. So, you know, so it's, I, I mean, when you're Tarantino, you could do whatever you want. Sure. You know I mean? The guy is one of the greatest, you know, filmmakers ever. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but when you're, you know, a guy that doesn't have a whole lot of credits, you know, stick to the script, right? you know, stick with everything, you know, you know, you signed on for a reason. Uh, and, uh, there's a vision there and, and, uh, and, you know, make sure that you have it solidified and everything's fine. Now I'm sure he will not, he won't say the same thing and that th this is the movie that he didn't, that he wanted to make, you know, but you know, it's a very collaborative pop process. And once you go off on your own, you know, you, you better deliver. Right. Well, what is the saying? Success has many fathers or mothers or mother parents, but uh, failure is an orphan. There, there you go. Right you know, there. Something like yep. that. Yep. Well, Luckily, um, luckily I survived it. You know, it, oh, it yeah. happened. You know, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's a great learning experience. And, uh, you just got to be very careful about, you know, who you work with mm -hmm. and the decisions that are made and working with good producers who are professional and, and that, uh, you know, all the rules are sort of, uh, being played by. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I was going to ask you, uh, a little bit later on in this, but I'm going to ask you now because it fits a perfect segue. Um, you've obviously had a number of great successes in your career and as with most working writers, uh, a disappointment or two <laughs> in your 20 years in the industry. How do you temper your enthusiasm and, and excitement when something great happens with the frustrations, uh, when something doesn't go your way without losing your passion for writing and for the industry and for filmmaking? It, it never, it, you, 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 once you think that you're in, in control of your thoughts and your emotions, you know, they come up and they smack you upside the head. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you can think that, uh, this is, you know, what you have is extremely special, you know, and it can just be pulled out from you anytime in this business. So I try and stay level headed throughout all the decision-making process as far as bad movies. Um, it's heartbreaking, 
uh, you feel betrayed. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And like you said, you know, people on Twitter, they don't know what went into a certain situation, but they'll bash you, but that's part of the job. You know, you're, you know, you're a screenwriter. That's part of being bashed. Um, even though maybe you don't have anything to do with it at all. Um, but the answer is, is that you just really need to be completely humble with every filmmaking experience. And, you know, and that's what, you know, I used to be an optimist, Kevin, you know, and lots of times with the screenwriter, you know, the, 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 uh, the pissed off screenwriter, the angry screenwriter, you know, that's not, that's a cliche for a reason. It's because it's true. You know, many of us are disgruntled because, you know, uh, we don't direct it ourselves because we're too lazy. We don't want to be on set. You know, if you really want it the way you want it, you've got to direct it yourself. And if you don't direct it yourself, it's your own fault. You have nobody else to blame but yourself. And so that's been my position for years. And the reason for that is because, you know, growing up an only child without a dad, I wanted to be a family man first. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to spend time with my kids and not be gone. And I have achieved that. I've never missed anything in my kids. That's great. But uh, as far as my career has gone, you know, it's prevented me from directing movies, which I think that I would be a a really good director. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, I mean, getting back to the point, you know, you just handle it with, sort of uh, grace and humility as much as possible. I mean, I'm talking a little bit of shit about directors, but it's it's to, to really sort of teach screenwriters to watch your ass um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, get in business, get in business with, with good people that have your interests at heart. Right. Um, and, well, I, uh, but, and like we talked about before we started uh, recording the podcast, uh, the the great thing about the podcast is stories like that, not necessarily bashing people, but showing like the jungle, showing how the sausage is made. It's not always pretty, um, mm-hmm. but it's part of the business. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many stories that I have with so many different movies, you know, I mean, I can describe them all to you in, in vivid detail. You know, the question is, is how bad do I want to throw somebody else under the bus? Um, you know, but, um, and I don't want to do that because I'm a nice person and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But it's imp- also important for screenwriters to understand the true, you know, nature of what they're getting into, especially a lot of the new new people here. It's a very, very difficult job. It's very demanding. And, uh, and, uh, you get your heart broken a lot. And then at the same time, you know, you have movies like American history X that change your life. Right. And so, um, you know, but the bigger thing is, is our, uh, the one thing we always have is our love of movies and, uh, and to, and you think the reason why is you have something to say, you got to have something to say, you know? So that's a really good part of it. You've written uh, a number of action drama and now with embattled a, a fighting film you know a movie about mma um writing fighting or action sequences how much detail and info do you put into it or and how much do you leave out to the director stunt coordinator fight choreographer whoever it may be well you're walking a fine line you know you don't want to 
I never put in camera angles or any of that right. silly. I never do pow. I've seen some screenplays where, <laughs> where they say pow for a punch in the face or something like that. I'll never do that, you know, but like with SWAT, you know, there was certain action sequences that, you know, like I knew we had the sixth street bridge to shoot with. And I was, mm. we, we were a few months away from shooting. And, uh, so I integrated the plane landing on the sixth street bridge, um, uh, with, uh, you know, embattled, uh, you know, just as far as the fight sequences, you know, there's dialogue that I write in between the punching and I, I learned a lot of the moves and so I wrote these moves down and, you know, but a lot of that stuff's never followed mm. and a lot of the dialogue ends up being cut, you know? And, and so you just, it's almost like a, it's almost like a template, uh, uh, the action sequences and it's for the director to just kind of interpret. And then he just sort of kind of runs with it on his own. And then in the editing room, you refine it and you go, okay, I think that's kind of what I wrote, you know, but it's not entirely it, mm. but it's just, you know, with action sequences, it's, it's a template, you know, and, uh, and if there's a few ideas in there that they really like, then they make sure they get that camera shot, they get that shot in and, um, you know, but so much of it comes together in the editing room with action sequences. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that's probably the best way to explain it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, as far as, Get Carter action sequences. I'm trying to think of all my action sequences. Embattled, SWAT. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you even have like an action sequence in American History X, mm -hmm. you know, with the shooting and the, the curb stomping. stomping and yeah. You know, I mean, that could be classified as an action sequence, I guess. Um, but even that was probably a little bit different than, um, uh, you know, what I had on the page. Um, oh, I see. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, and it could be everything from, you know, uh, just the way Edward, you know, uh, Edward doing the curb stomp, you know, whatever. Let's take that, for example, the way he shoots the gun, you know, uh, um, you know, the way, uh, you know, every little detail. But uh, for the most part, it's a template. Now, you brought up the curb stomp. Uh, since you brought it up, where did that come from? the idea for that come from and how does it feel to have written one of those scenes that like you mentioned American history X and you think Edward Norton and you think, you know, obviously, you know, the overarching themes of it, but that scene, the curb stop, it's one of those cinematic scenes that people just remember yeah. um, to have, a, to have written that scene. What is that? Yeah. Like, do people bring it up to you all the time when they find out you wrote American oh, history X? Yeah. yeah. So wh where, where did that come from? <laughs> I, you know, I just, I think I remember when I was a kid reading uh, about it from a gang member or something mm. in the early 80s. And I just, and then from when we were shoot, when I was writing the screenplay and, and the situation was right there. And from there, I must have pulled it out of my brain from, you know, 15 years earlier or something that was in the back of my head. And I, I don't think I made it up, but I don't think I stole it either. I think sure. it's maybe a combination of them or whatever, but it just fit. And, um, and then, you know, I just, you know, the guy was wounded and I just, 
I just said, what is a really, really violent way right. to get this point across? And that was it. And then once that, once that little percolation of an idea came across and then I could expand on it, mm-hmm. you know, from the brother watching, you know, and the brother doing his paper on, you know, and his brother witnessing it and uh, him going to jail and just everything, you know, I mean, it's a really, it's a really, you know, I mean, it's brutal. Yeah. And it's, it's an iconic scene, you know, and, and I constantly get it. I mean, I think it's one of the most violent scenes in the history of cinema, uh, for that instant. And, uh, and, but it really gets the point across of who the character is. Sure. And, and, and it really adds to his overall character arc in the end. Right. So, and that's the thing. That's what makes it so brutal and so effective. Because it's not just violence for violence sake. You, like you said, it illustrates his character and it, it definitely gives you uh, a feel for who this person is, not just I'm violent. You know, there's, there's yeah. a, 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 an intense primal brutality to it. Yeah. So, no, yeah. it's, no, it's, you know, obviously it's a, when you can write a scene like that, it's, you, you know, you're, you love it. Yeah. You know, especially when you pull it off. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, I think the whole movie as a whole, that's just one element of it. You sure. Know, it's funny. funny how everybody brings it up first, you know, you know, you're a sick fuck, Dave, et cetera. Right. But, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking independent film, <clears throat> you know, in terms of moments that are, icon- you know, things that a movie is known for, whether it's, you know, Big mm-hmm. Lebowski and, and the rug that brings the room together or it's, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, what is it? Uh, trying to think um what is that film uh no country for for old men uh with the uh the air gun thing yes um you know you know things like that that you just remember that is the first thing that sticks in your mind about that film again it's there's such great films so there's a million things you can go to but that's the one thing that first comes to your mind um, yeah. because you know, those are those iconic moments in cinema. So that's I great. remember, I remember seeing Reservoir Dogs in the theater mm. yeah. and Buscemi, Buscemi firing the gun, Buscemi firing, uh, his gun, mm-hmm. uh, at the cops. At the right. And I had never seen oh. gunfire like that. And that's when you know, with like Tarantino, a true auteur. You know, somebody that has really put a lot of thought into this shot. And I thought it was just gripping. You know, it's something that I've never forgotten, the way Buscemi fires his gun in that scene. Because you hadn't seen it up to this point. And there weren't, like it wasn't like a bunch of cutaways and, you know, it wasn't, you know, this sort of slick. He empties a clip. Move. Yeah. You know, he empties a clip. He shoots like 17 rounds. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um but anyway, so yeah, no, there's those moments where you just remember. Yeah. And then he gets, and then he, doesn't he run and get hit by a car or something like that? This, <laughs> he's is, running. this is right after he gets hit by the car. And he's oh, right after he gets hit. He's yeah. trying to get in the car and the cops show up and he just starts firing. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, now, that, and, that and cutting the ear off, you know? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the warehouse. Um, yeah. Now, you, in addition to obviously your film work, you have also created your own show, E-Ring on NBC with uh, yeah. Bruckheimer, uh, starring mm-hmm. Benjamin Bratt and Dennis Hopper. Um, and I, I read on your IMDb that you also wrote the Scarface 
video game, video game? which is yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, how does the writing and, and production differ between those different mediums? Well, I mean, doing E-Ring, you know, mm-hmm. that was a bitch, you know, I mean, that is 23 episodes right. in a year. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we started off and, you know, we were on NBC and at the time NBC was a struggling network and, um, we went up against lost American idol and criminal minds. And so it was a struggle, you mm-hmm. know, and you're, here you are pumping out 23 episodes and you're, you know, that NBC is just trying to get the ratings up. And we, we actually did fairly well, but not compared to those shows. And mm-hmm. so it was very difficult with E-Ring, but you know, you just gotta, you have your writer's room and you're just trying to crank out the episodes and make them as compelling as possible. And it's a lot of work. Um, uh, with, uh, with video games, that was just, that was just ridiculous as far as, uh, just how many times could I say fuck you for Tony Montana? You know, I mean, I, they literally gave me an Excel spreadsheet right. to write down all these different ways. I don't know how many I came up with, but it was pretty, uh, extensive. And that's all I can really remember. I think I wrote a few scenes, but they would just send me, you know, here's, we need, a, we need some dialogue here. And I would just come up with some dialogue. It was, mm-hmm. it was a lot of work for not a lot of money, but you know, the fact is that I have a, my name on a Scarface, uh, um, uh, video game. The TV show, that's a lot different, um, compared to movies. You know, it's, uh, uh, um, you know, you are, you're, you're relying on a lot of other writers to help you out. Um, I rewrote a lot of those scripts. Um, you have to deal with the actors. You have to deal with the editing room. You have to deal, you're casting at the same time. I mean, you're constantly, uh, you know, doing, you know, work. And then you're dealing with the studio, Warner Brothers. You're dealing with Brookheimer, who's very, very involved. And you're dealing with the network, NBC. And so, you know, it's not the same as doing t- 10 episodes on Netflix where they give you, you know, some autonomy. You know, it's very control. Network TV is a very controlling environment and it's very difficult. I have a lot of respect for guys that do that. You know, it's really hard, you know, to get everything. Then, you know, and then you eventually have a machine. But And, and then E-Ring was a difficult show to produce because we did, you know, we were out in the field a lot on missions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So... Um, you know, I, to this day, I, I'm, I'm, I think we did a lot of great episodes. We did some bad episodes. Um, it was a, it was a good learning process for me. Um, but, uh, in the end, you know, we, we only did one season and that to me is, a, is, you know, it's not success. It's a failure, but you know, lots of people do it. Lots of people endure it, uh, failure. And, uh, the thing is to just pick yourself back up and get after it again, do the best you can. Well, and a lot of shows never get to the pilot stage, or if they get to the pilot stage, you never get to the series stage, or if they get to yeah. the series stage, they go three, four, five, six episodes and are canceled and are yanked from the schedule. And, you know, yeah. so, you know, I mean, the fact that you got a, a show on the air to me is, is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. You can't, once it's on the air, you can't, you can't control necessarily how, the it would schedule or the you know the the marketing budget you can't control all that kind of stuff but well our lead in was Martha 
which got, I think, a Martha Stewart show, which I think got a oh. four share, you oh. know, for NBC. Meanwhile, Criminal Minds lead in was CSI, which got a 27 share, sure. you know, yeah. so, um, you know, uh, so much of TV is luck. Mm-hmm. So much of movies is luck, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, just the overall, uh, the stars being aligned, you know, right. it, it's very, very true. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so going back to, uh, some of the things you've written, um, you had mentioned that, uh, American History X was your fourth script you had written. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever happened to the first three scripts you had written, uh, where are they right now? And what do you think it was about the f- American History X that's, that you learned from your first three scripts that weren't in the first three scripts? Obviously, they're very different. I'm, I'm assuming they're different there. Um, but what was it about American History X that you think sort of pushed you over that goal line? And was it something you had learned, obviously, from your first three scripts? What are some of those lessons that you would learn? You know, because the more you write, the better you get, period, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's a great question. Um, I think that, well, my other screenplays were, one was a murder mystery on a college campus, mm-hmm. um, which I still think, which I still would love to set up. Um, I, I think that a who, whodunits are, are really big, especially with the young audience today, and I mm-hmm. think that they love seeing those. Um, another one is a football script that I'm still trying to, that I would love to direct someday, high mm-hmm. school football. And then the other one is that rate thing with, uh, the male perspective, which I oh, mentioned okay. earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, writing American history, actually, you know, with, I think that with the flashbacks, I think it was a character that was extremely unique. Um, I think that, you know, the device of, you know, the brother being assigned a paper and having to, and him kind of, narrating it throughout and then i also think that you know the big aspect was the character arc and Mm. and you know uh um derek you know going from you know telling two stories at the same time one is he's being released from prison and you don't know exactly what he's up to and then he and then we see flashbacks of what he used to be like through the brother and I think, and I think that the bonding relationship between the two brothers is something that, you know, people love to see. Um, and then, uh, you know, just the notion of a really intelligent skinhead, I thought was, uh, a really great character. And strangely enough, Kevin, we had a really difficult time casting that part, you know, lots mm-hmm. of passes, lots of passes. And then finally, uh, uh, one of the producers on it, John Morrissey comes up to me and he says, uh, he calls me and he says, uh, David, Edward Norton wants to play Derek. And I said, who's Edward Norton? And, uh, he goes, go see, uh, um, uh, um, Primal Fear. Mm-hmm. And Primal Fear was out at the time. And I went to go see Primal Fear and I go, wow. I go, but this guy's, this guy's really skinny. <laughs> Derek is a, Derek is a monster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we met with Edward and Edward, he still was skinny, but you know, he was very intelligent. He understood the part and he said he would put on 25 pounds of muscle. And we said, yeah, go for it. But getting back to, um, this light just went off. Um, getting back to, um, uh, you know, wh- how I improved, you know, I mean, you just, 
you're always writing and you're always improving and you're always rewriting stuff. And I think that once you get going towards a goal, you know, of uh, achieving something and knowing you're near something that's really great um, and listening to your, listening to people, um, you know, you just keep, you just keep at it and you improve, you know? And uh, I think that's what what happened with American history. I think that I had grown a lot as a writer by then um, you know, I look back at some of those drafts I'd built when I was 22 and it's funny, you know, they're terrible. You know, it's really hard to become a good writer when you're that young. It's very rare to sell a screenplay before you're 24, or 25, because your brain writing a screenplay is a very meticulous type science. And your brain hasn't really learned how to, because so much of screenwriting is what not to write. And, you know, you can always see a novice screenwriter when in their prose, they're just basically telling us everything Mm -hmm. and um and one of the greatest scripts i ever read was the good shepherd by eric roth and i ended up i I ended up developing a a movie one time with his wife and so i became friends with eric and i have huge amount of respect for eric but the good shepherd i mean you're when you read that you're trying to figure stuff out the whole time you know, and he doesn't hit you over the head with all the details and how you're supposed to feel or think and all that. And I think that's a true sign of a brilliant screenwriter. He trusts the reader to mm-hmm. figure stuff out, you know, and I think that it's important for novice screenwriters to trust readers more and not hit us over the head with the details. Do you find that that's something that differs between writing film and writing network, specifically network television? in terms of how much information that you sort of hit your audience over the head with or lack thereof and, and trust your audience to follow along in film. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a total different ball game with film and TV. Um, one of one, uh, one, somebody at Warner brothers, I was, I would say DOD and the ring cause it's a military show. Mm-hmm. And she goes, can we just say department of defense? Mm-hmm. You know, and <laughs> right. you know, I want Macker, you know, because the DOD dialogue is great. I mean, right. they used to say DOD in West Wing, right? Um, but yeah, you need to spell stuff out for uh, people in network television, whereas you don't need to do so much in, in movies. Mm-hmm. But if and people I, don't understand something in movies, and you got to clarify it for sure. Oh, sure, no, absolutely, absolutely. It just seems like with film, you just you trust your audience more, maybe because you have two hours, you invest in more in that or in, in you're isolated to the theater or you're watching just that. Whereas in TV, a lot of times it's, yeah, you know, commercial breaks and people are coming right. and going, you know, so yeah. you have to spell things out more. I don't know what that is, but, um, no, there's a big difference. Yeah. I haven't done a show yet for uh cable or for streaming. Sure. So, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that one yet. Right. But I assume it's more like movies. Yeah. No, I, I think it is from all the people that I've spoken to and the experiences yeah. that I've had. Yeah. It's very much more so because they don't, a lot of them don't have commercials or, you know, they're just given a little more leeway as, as filmmakers and writers. Right. Yeah. With, with network TV, you always got to come out with this big out, you know, commercial yeah. break out. Right, you know? right, right, right. Act out. Yeah. It's, it's silliness. Right. It's, it really because otherwise, what if, what's to make people want to come back and see the next, right. yeah, after the commercial break? Well, I don't know, the story, the characters, I don't know, any number of those things, but yeah. Right. No, I gotcha. Um, and I wanted to touch base on one other thing, because with films like SWAT, you know, dealing with uh, law enforcement or American History X, dealing with, you know, white supremacy, 
or with embattled with, you know, dealing with MMA, how much research do you do for these? Or, or do you follow that your passions, like you not white supremacy, obviously, but, you know, like things that you've studied on, on your own, or is it something like, this is a great story, but it deals with white supremacy. I'm going to dive into this and, and do a ton of research. What comes first, the, the horse or the carriage? And how much research do you actually put into something like MMA when you're writing a script like Embattled? Well, that's a good question. There's two different, I mean, that's two different strategies going on there. With American History X, I first wrote the script first on what I knew, and then I did, and then I met with skinheads and got mm. more research and refined the characters from there. With SWAT, um, I got to know the officer. I had some ideas that I wanted to do. I came in, I was like the eighth writer on SWAT. Mm. I mean, that they developed that movie for years with, with uh, Schwarzenegger. And then Sam Jackson signed on. And so that changed everything. Um, so uh, um, with SWAT, I got to know that we had a technical advisor named uh, um, Randy Walker. And Randy Walker was a SWAT cop for 16 years. And so I picked Randy's brain, you know, mm -hmm. about all these different ideas. Um, and I stole a lot from Randy. He was great. Um, so and then so Randy really sort of helped me write the SWAT stuff to be more authentic. And then, but with, uh, with, uh, um, American history, X, the, the research was more of an afterthought to just sharpen things up a mm. little, little bit more and make right. it more accurate. Give it a little like, more authenticity. Like I, like I was, I remember being at uh, a part, uh, one of these skinhead parties and, uh, that Tony brought me to the director. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really a party. It was just like six guys and a couple girls drinking beers. And I saw a guy with, uh, an M16 on the side of his head. And I go, okay, well, Jesus, that's really, really good. And I gave that to one of the characters in prison, the, mm -hmm. the lead, the lead bad guy in the prison. Um, and just stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it was, uh, um, you know, it, you're just picking, you know, you're just picking and choosing. You're always making stuff better. You know, back then I was always writing stuff on, on cocktail napkins, little details, cause it's the little things that make a script better. Right. Um, with, um, nowadays I just, I have my quick voice on my iPhone, you know, and I, but I'm all, you'll forget it if you don't, if you don't take care of it at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. so you, whenever you come up with that idea, you've got to say that idea into your iPhone on the quick voice and recordings and then listen to it afterwards. It might be shit. It might be good. It might be helping the script, but either way, you've got to say that idea. You've got to write that idea down when you have it, because if you don't, you're going to miss out on stuff. That's a huge thing with writing screenplays, right. you know, because it's the little things that make stuff great, you right. know? And it's funny how you mentioned that. And you mentioned Platoon earlier on, because for me, that was one of the films that I'd seen. I was probably too young to watch it, but I did anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I was allowed to watch it. And I, I was entranced with that film. And I'd seen it a number of times uh, on video, on, on VHS. and then there, there came like a wave of Vietnam War movies after that with uh, um, Full Metal Jacket Full Metal and Hamburger, Jacket. Hamburger Hill and a bunch of other films. And as great as Full Metal Jacket was, and it was a great film, um, a lot of them came afterwards. They felt like they were just kind of tacked on. And there was an authenticity because I had read, I went on to read, a, I don't know, maybe 20 books about the Vietnam War. And there's a specific authenticity to Platoon that you don't see in most of those other films or any of those other films, really. And I think it's because, which I learned uh, 
Oliver Stone was actually in the Vietnam War. He fought there. So yeah. everything from the writing to the side of soldiers' helmets to the way they carry themselves and the way they looked and talked, it was like you were there. It felt like a documentary almost. And it, you know, in mm-hmm. some ways, it may have been his part of, you know, elements of, of his experience. And that's what I think what we're talking about here is <clears throat> the authenticity, the flavor and the color. The story is yours, but a lot of the little details that come from the research that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, writing what you know, it's not, you know, once again, it's not a cliche. You know, it helps if you write what you know. It makes it more authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, that's why, uh, you know, I wrote a football script. I played football. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I never did MMA. Um, I never had a brother, but I have – I have, Fun. I have two sons and, mm-hmm. uh, telling, for embattled, telling, uh, uh, watching that dynamic, dynamic between my two sons transfers over to my two boys in the movie, you know? So, I mean, and it only adds to the authenticity as compared to if you don't have any children at all. Oh, sure. And so, um, yeah, I mean, those are huge advantages that you got to take, that you got to take and you got to make, uh, great and you got to insert into your movies, you know, mm-hmm. because people will love that. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, um, and I remember seeing Platoon in the theater, you know, uh, I, I snuck into it and, uh, you know, I just thought it was remarkable and, uh, I'm a big Apocalypse Now guy. I'm a big Robert Duvall fan, you know, from mm-hmm. Apocalypse. I do a great, uh, Robert Duvall imitation. Um, but, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you can't say that and not do it. <laughs> What do you know about surfing major? You're from goddamn New Jersey. You know, I mean, just that, that's a terrible version, but, um, um, you Charlie, know, don't uh, surf, right? I, I do it better when I'm drunk. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and, and so, and then that goes back to the great Santini and that goes back to the Cash Boykins, the father son story, you know, when, when he loses the one-on-one in basketball in the great Santini and he's, he's bouncing the, the ball off the back of his son's head, wanting to do a rematch. Um, you know, cry, baby, cry, you know, one, two, three, cry, you know, I mean, that's powerful shit mm-hmm. and between father and sons. And that's one thing that I wanted to capture with the battle, you know, so I saw an opportunity there with that. And I think we did that. I think we pulled that off pretty strongly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, I think I answered your question. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, we're, I, we like to sort of bring it all together. Um, we're all stuck at home, sort of. People are less quarantining now, I think, than they were at the beginning. But we're all sort of stuck at home, especially mm-hmm. now that there's new quarantine measures in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, maybe less so in Orange County a little bit. But, it's close. It's yeah. Close. But across the country, things are, are uh, sort of taking a turn for the worse, unfortunately. Um, what are some things that you're reading, watching, playing, or listening to nowadays? Like, what is something that you've really enjoyed um, watching, reading, playing, or listening to of late that you can recommend? Well, I like, I've been catching up on, I, I like showing my kids um, the real movies of what used to go on mm-hmm. um, as compared to, I mean, they're just so inundated with the Avengers and all that bullshit, you right. know, and I just can't, I can't stand it. They just become stupid afterwards. 
And so I show them, you know, whether it be a whodunit, I, I like showing them the jagged edge. Mm. Um, I want to show them uh, presumed innocent. I want to show them one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, they're a little bit young for Chinatown. Mm. Um, I, my oldest now is 19. And so I'm trying to show him, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and The Godfather, mm-hmm. you know, so really kind of uh, getting my oldest son and my daughters into it too. Um, Colin, he, Colin doesn't like movies that much, you know, he'd rather play on his phone and all that. Mm. Um, but getting them, you know, acclimated with what great movies used to be. And it's a shame, you know, I think that we're going to look back on our generate. This is why I still do what I do. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not in the Marvel world, you know, mm-hmm. and I have a feeling that we're going to regret, you know, our legacy of the fact that we haven't maybe, and maybe the COVID is the answer. Maybe we'll stop doing $200 million movies every time out. Maybe we'll get back to doing, 30 to $40 million. And maybe we'll take a little bit less of a hit on, you know, on the 2 billion. Granted, I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, if you're, if you're a studio and you're owned by a conglomerate, it's much more advantageous to, to make a $200 million movie that makes you 2 billion. I get it. But it certainly would be nice for some of these studios every once in a while to make a smaller move, to make, put on their, you know, invest a hundred million dollars in smaller films kind of like what they used to do with some of those smaller entities like Fox Searchlight or mm-hmm. Paramount Vintage or whatever. And, um, and just, you know, have those. So we are leaving a, a legacy to our kids. Um, so we are, so we, they do understand other, other things other than Wonder Woman and the Avengers and Ant-Man. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's sad. And it's upsetting to me that, um, you know, these kids come out of the theaters and they're numb and they don't feel anything the next day. You know, I've, I've seen those movies. There's nothing to talk about. You know, there's nothing to talk about at a coffee shop afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just bombarded with special effects. And so I try, so the biggest point is, is that, you know, during this COVID crisis, I'm trying to get my kids, we, we're watching movies to see the power of movies and to show them some of these older movies that are just fantastic, you know, and, uh, and uh, I would love for us to get back to them and maybe COVID is the answer. Maybe they won't be making $200 million movies as much anymore because they can't make their money back. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll start making, you know, more $50 million movies that make a couple hundred million. I doubt it, but that's my dream. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of smaller films um, are moving online, uh, you know, to the Netflixes there as they start to have to build their library because you have Fox and you have uh, Universal and you have all these different studios creating their own um, uh, online streaming platforms. Yeah, right. You know, you have the CBS All Access and you have the Disney Pluses of the world and the HBOs for the Warner stuff that places like Netflix and Amazon Prime that don't have or haven't in the past, really, they don't have that, that library that they've borrowed that library from, you know, bought, I should say, rented the library from other studios, the historical libraries now have to sort of find their own and make their own content, which they've been doing, obviously, they spent billions making content. But mm. I mean, that may be part of the future as well is, you know, making a $30 million film, 
for Netflix, for Amazon Prime, as opposed to a theatrical release or a theatrical small, very limited small theatrical release for, you know, award season, things like that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, like I have this script out there that I'm taking out called uh, Cabo and it's sort of a, it's kind of like a taken, you know, mm. um, but it doesn't have all the action of uh, something that uh, extraction, which is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And um, because it has more character stuff. Um, and so I have a feeling that I'm going to be getting that note of they need more action. Well, you don't necessarily need more mm. action. It's not the action. People are numb to action. You know, I think they want, a lot of people want more emotional stuff between characters. I mean, that's what really sort of drives them, I think, to the, to the, unless you're talk, close, you're talking about, you know, the, those, the Avengers stuff like that. You know, I mean, there's still some character stuff that goes on in those. I don't, I don't want to completely hammer those movies, mm-hmm. but you know, there is something special to, uh, the 20 to $30 million movie. We should be able to still make those mm-hmm. with, you know, they decry all the marketing costs. Well, you don't need all the mark. You need to get creative, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a movie should not, it not should be 2 million or 200 million. I and mean, we got lucky with them battle at 10 million, mm. you know? Um, but, uh, you know, we need to get back to, you know, the seventies and the eighties, even the nineties and just in, in kind of maybe COVID, the executives will rethink, Hey, we need to start making some of these movies again. And, uh, and it'll lessen their risk for the theater, you know, but I don't know when people are going to be coming back to the theater, you know, hopefully they come back soon and and all this stuff goes away and I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, and plus with Netflix and with, with, you know, I, I just don't think that a whole lot of people have, have a desire to go back to the theaters and it could sort of really kill uh, these big giant plans of the studios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the trend for big theater. I mean, obviously, movie theaters aren't going anywhere permanently as a whole because it's an event. It's it's a night out. But yeah. I know movie theaters make their money off of concessions and. Um, it's, this is another thing we spoke about in the last the Thanksgiving podcast, the, the, the group discussion that like I spoke to a general manager of a theater, an AMC that had one of those dine-in theaters, you know, instead of a 300 seat auditorium, there were like 60 seats and there were those recliners and they have, uh, uh, you know, waiters or waitresses come in, you order your food at your seat, they bring you your food, they bring you your beverage, you know, they have a bar, you know, that you can order drinks from. And I spoke to him and he's like, we make a lot more money with 60 seats because they don't make much, much money from the actual ticket sales. And we make more money from alcohol than we do from ticket sales. Yeah. (laughs) So for the theaters, it makes more sense to have fewer seats and a more, uh, expensive but premium i think they call it uh uh, experience for their patrons whereas for a studio it's just about getting the bodies in for the first week or two you get 90 percent of the box office it goes straight to the studio and then obviously depending on what it is an avengers may get 90 percent for five weeks whereas something smaller uh gets 90 percent the first week and then it goes down progressively from there every week so for them it's just about bodies and seats so there's going to be that sort of discussion on percentages and is it worth for uh, theaters to stay open 
if they have to put in 300 seats and they're getting 10% of box office and then whatever they can scrape together from popcorn sales, which is yeah. why popcorn's $9 uh, <laughs> versus, okay, we can put in 60 seats and every couple's now spending 50 to $60 on a meal and, and drinks and everything. But the studio's only making uh, 90% of 60 yeah. seats as opposed to 300 seats. Is it still makes sense to make $200 million movies if they're not getting, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of pans out. And I don't know, what that yeah. is. And then again, a lot, especially during COVID, uh, people might be getting more accustomed to staying at home and with cheap TVs, you can get a 65 well, inch TV for 300 deal. bucks. Yeah, you know? that's the deal. Yeah, that's the deal. And if that's the case, then they're, they're not going to be able to make the $200 million movie anymore. It's going to be, yeah. You know? But we'll see. It's going to be interesting in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, but we'll I would, see. but my point, my point is, is yeah. that just, you know, it would be nice to leave some sort of a, a legacy that we could be proud of. of and, I th- and I think you're right about, I don't know if it's just the era or because films have become so box office driven and such, and they've always been box office driven. I should change that, but they've become very uh, tentpole driven. Like you need the mm-hmm. Avengers, you need an IP, you need something huge to draw on audiences. Maybe it's switched because now television has a lot of those uh, heartfelt dr- heartfelt moments and, and, and like writing a comedy, uh, getting notes saying that it's really funny, but it needs more heart. And I realize a lot of the most successful comedies now, things like Schitt's Creek or things like Ted Lasso, they're not just funny, but they have really great character development. And they're really about these characters and the, the comedies in addition to that. And they have all, a lot of heartfelt dramatic moments, which you saw to some degree in, in comedies of the past, whether it was Roseanne or I Love Lucy or whatever, but it was still secondary to the comedy. Like they, they would introduce them at certain, like this is the episode about drugs or this is the episode about death or whatever it happens to be. But generally speaking, it was a family comedy. Whereas yeah. I think nowadays the stories revolve around these characters and, and their emotions and, and it's, it's very different. And I think maybe that, is happening because of a public desire to have this, but because they can't go to the theaters and see that because there's so few uh, independent films, so few smaller budget films that have that, the emotion, the raw emotion, the feelings and, and, and the dramatic aspects. You just have these big action films and, uh, and these huge IPs. Right. They have to get it from somewhere and it's, it's falling to TV. I maybe, I don't know. That's, you know, and that's, and that's a great point. I mean, I think it makes sense with what you're saying there. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm proud of with Embattled is for all the people that um, have watched it, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, very, it's not what they expected. And it's, a very, it's very moving, you know, the relationships with um, the brothers and, and the mom. You know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Reeser is freaking amazing you know, as the mom and, and Darren Mann in my movie is, is, is incredible. So they're, you know, and dealing with Steven, you know, is, so there's lots of emotions going on and you just kind of miss that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and uh, I think that, you know, hopefully we can reevaluate that, you know, with the movie business wow. and hopefully we can get these specialty studios back and, you know, get, get some of these movies made by the studios. Right. Um, they might not make the same amount of money. You could still do the Avengers. You could still do those things, but you know, let's, let's 
let's have some movies that, you know, are, uh, are heartfelt, you know, right. and, and so we'll see. I'm probably wrong. I know I'm just a dreamer. You know, I'm sure all the executives at, at the studios are going to be laughing their ass off at what I'm saying, but there is such thing as a legacy. And is this, you know, is this what these people dreamed of when they were kids, when they were getting to get into the business, just making Avenger, making one Avenger after another, you know, no, there's no way they dreamed of Chinatown and they dreamed of, uh, the Godfather and, and, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction. And, uh, and right now, none of those movies would get made. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, hopefully people will take a, a little bit of a look in the mirror. I'm not talk- talking about a long look, just a little look. And then maybe they can get behind some of these movies. Well, and it's clear that, that there's the demand for it, that, that, that people still want that. Again, you can see it in television, what shows are popular. And, and the thing that people are talking about are, again, shows like, uh, Schitt's Creek, shows like Ted Lasso, shows like, uh, Fargo, no, you know, so the demand is there. It's just not being made in film nowadays, which, yeah. it, but I mean, but that shows that the demand is there. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, you know, uh, you, you mentioned Eric Roth. Uh, Force Gump wasn't successful because of all the different time periods and, and the comedic moments. It was, it made so much money and became this cultural icon because of those heartfelt moments, because yeah. of, of the emotion involved in it, because it was real, not because, oh, I can CGI, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson or whatever, <laughs> Nixon into, uh, a film, a scene with Tom Hanks, but, you know, be, because of, of, we wanted, we rooted for, for Forrest Gump and, you know, all the emotional moments with Lieutenant Dan. I mean, that was why it was successful. It didn't need those CGI it moments. It had a few. Right. But that's, that's the kind of thing I think that's missing now. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, so. you're hitting the nail right on the head right there. And, and our kids are being cheated because of it. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Um, so lastly, what's one bit of life advice that's been passed on to you? Maybe they've passed on to your kids that you found helpful in your life and career. Um, well, you know, growing up with a growing up without a dad, it hurts you. And um, you know, you you miss out on a lot of stuff. I remember in the natural, the movie with Redford. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Close has the kid, you know, has the son that Robert Redford's the father, but he doesn't know he's the father. And, and she goes, I think he's getting ready to, uh, he's about ready to meet his dad. And, and, and Robert Redford's character goes, yeah, a father makes all the difference. And, um, and so I've always tried to kind of improve on that level. And it's, and it was diff- it's difficult. And so, um, you know, as far as life lessons are, are concerned, concern is just, you know, putting other people before yourself. Um, you know, I have, I'm the opposite of being selfish, you know, I mean, whatever, I mean, I love spoiling my kids at this, but at the same time, you know, teaching them responsibility and being strict and loving them at the same time. But, uh, I mean, working hard, listening, uh, wanting to improve yourself, um, as a dad, as a husband, um, you, you know, as a person, 
And, uh, those are the, those are the life lessons that, uh, um, you know, I've come to learn over the years, you know, you don't, you know, I remember back when I was starting off as a young screenwriter, I was extremely selfish mm. before having kids. You know, I thought that the the world sort of revolved around me. I had so much success at so young and uh, you learn, you know, the hard way that that's not how life works. And, uh, and so I guess the answer to your question is, is that, um, if you can sort of, uh, take a lot of that information came from my wife. <laughs> and I'm sure you're getting some of that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you could be so self-deprecating and humble that you, you know, you will, you, you want to improve as a person and you're willing to listen, um, I think that uh, you'll be better off in the long run. I think that's one thing that I've learned over my career from a personal standpoint um, of how to handle situations and how to handle, you know, uh, um, you know, having success and learning from it and realizing, man, it's fleeting. Yeah. You know, it's fleeting. I, I didn't have a movie for a long time. This is my first movie in a long time. And uh, I've been working, but I haven't mm-hmm. had anything made, you know, yeah. and it's, it's humbling. Yeah. And, and, but it's good. It's a good thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, 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 you know, the cliche, you know, once again, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger, yeah. you know, and that, that's both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, you know, those are the little bit of life lessons, you know, put other people before yourself. Yeah. It's real simple. No. Yeah. No, I mean, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank you for coming on the show and chatting with us today, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. It's um, been great. And you can stick around for a few more minutes to answer a few more questions sure. on the after show on Patreon. Sure. And, and, get, and you need to see the movie, buddy. The movie's great. Yeah, you know? no. I, I, you know, as we were talking about before, when you have a brand new puppy that we got two weeks ago yeah. and a, a seven-year-old that you're homeschooling because right. of COVID. I um, got it. Yeah, so, but I mean, I saw the trailer and it looks fantastic. So definitely, if you're watching, I'm going to check it out. I found it on um, Amazon, so I'm going to watch it on Amazon. It's also on Apple TV. Okay. And it's also on Vudu. Okay. And on iTunes. Okay. The one that I use is Amazon. Yeah, yeah. So check it out wherever you can check it out because it is, and I know it is on in, from IFC, unlimited release in theaters, but I know with COVID, it's all weird and wacky and, you know, it's 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 one of those things. But you know the the you know really great feedback so far. Yeah, the Times well, review was glowing. That you yeah, know, and you were well, able to to bring in uh, su- such great adrenaline pumping action and really heartfelt dramatic moments, and the characters felt real. And so no, I mean, it, it, and the trailer looks fantastic. So you it, at the beginning it looks kind of flashy, like one of those you know movies. It's like oh, these two fighters, like a Rocky kind of thing. Um, which is not bad necessarily, but then you have a lot of the, you know, the, the Friday night lights kind of emotional, uh, family moments and, and, and struggle and, and conflict. The casting, the casting's insane. You know, yeah. Steven, Steven and Darren and Elizabeth and Carucci and my son Colin and Donald Faison's amazing. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just the casting and the, the acting is, you know, I mean, yes. Edward Gordon and Edward Furlong were amazing in American History X. Mm-hmm. Detract, detract but this is by far, to me, this cast 
collectively, it's the best acting I've ever had in any movie. No, that's great. You know, they that's great. really, they really got the characters off the page. And Nick, uh, our director, directed him, you know, with you know a steady hand. So it's, uh, it's. I'm very proud of this movie. Mm-hmm. I really am. No, that's great. Yeah, I'll definitely go see it. Out. Yeah, embattled. Yeah. From IFC Films, limited release now in theaters on digital and video on demand. Like you said, uh, Apple TV Plus or Apple, I don't even know what it's called nowadays. Um, Amazon, Vudu. Uh, Apple TV, I think. Just Apple, you could find Apple, it on TV. Apple TV, yeah. Amazon Prime, yeah. Vudu. All those you know, services. All yeah. those. You could find them. Um, and you have an Instagram? I heard that you got signed up for Instagram David by David McKenna, screenwriter, I think it is. I do okay. need, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from my kids how to post today. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So we'll have a link to that below. Um, uh, and uh, if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you again, David. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Great to be on. And for those of you who want to follow up and a little more with David and me, then check us out on the After Show on Patreon. And thank you all for listening. 